Thank you, Sean. Good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. We're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John. I'd like to invite you to open up to John chapter 18. Our text this morning will be verses 1 through 27. John 18, 1 through 27. Jesus has finished his farewell discourse in which he's comforted his disciples and prepared them for the mission that was ahead of them. He knew they would be grieving. He knew they would be suffering. He knew they were about to get rocked. He took a great deal of time to comfort them and then to make sure that they were fortified for the task that was in front of them, a task that was beyond them, really. And then he, he concluded, he's just finished his high priestly prayer in John 17, in which he prayed for the manifestation of the Father's glory, as Jesus is about to finish the task that was given to him. And he prayed for his apostles, and then he prays for his church. And this prayer that finished in John 17, it marks the end of his time with his disciples and the beginning of his humiliation and suffering. What's about to happen is going to be very unsettling. The next few hours are going to be a time in which things appear to get very dark. It's going to look like an unraveling. Justice is going to be perverted. The disciples are going to be scattered. A mighty king is going to surrender to a lesser foe. A traitor will succeed. And the greatest evil that's ever been done is about to be inflicted on the only innocent person that's ever lived. It's about to be a very dark hour. This is something that we'll come back to later. But from the perspective of anyone watching these things unfold, it would appear that Christ was brought to ruin at his arrest and the events following. And it would appear that his mission was a heartbreaking failure by all who were watching or participating. Of course, we know that this is because those who are watching and those who are participating had not yet understood that the very situation that appeared to be a failure, the very things that looked like they were going wrong, was the path that God had ordained would be the path to victory, to the accomplishing of, of the mission. They were witnessing and participating in the success of Christ's deliberate mission in what looks like a disaster. In spite of appearances, things were going according to plan. This is connected to our main idea this morning. Though Jesus' arrest appeared to be a failure, his mission was proceeding according to his plan, which involved his voluntary humiliation and suffering on our behalf. It appeared to be a failure, but was going just as he and the Father had planned. That involved his voluntary humiliation and suffering on our behalf. Let's get into our text together this morning. John 18, beginning in verse 1 now. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the band of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. This was to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me. I lost not one. 
Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? So the band of soldiers and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And they led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out, spoke to the doorkeeper, and brought Peter in. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the slaves and the officers were standing there, having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold, and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. When he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. And one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again, and immediately a rooster crowed. Would you pray with me once more? Father God, we are so thankful for the word that you have given to us. We know that it is breathed out by you, that it is authoritative, that it is inerrant, and that it is sufficient for all that we need for life and godliness. And yet we also know that we are completely dependent upon you to be able to understand it, to store it in our hearts, and to practice it in our lives. So Lord, would you guide us today? Holy Spirit, would you please give me words to say to be clear and helpful and encouraging to your church. Protect me from saying anything false. And give us all ears to hear. Strengthen your church now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? So, what I want to do real quickly, we're going to have a three-point outline. Your sermon notes are blank. But for those of you who like to plan ahead, you're going to have one, two, three, A, B, C in each of them. It'll be great. Okay? One ABC, two ABC, three ABC. So budget for that much space. We'll get to the outline in a minute, but before we before we do that, I'm just going to overview a couple of details from the text so that we are situated in the narrative and can answer a couple of things. And then there's there's really three observations that I want to make sure we we make note of and give careful consideration to before we leave today. Um, you could preach weeks of sermons from this text. So. We're going to have to settle for saying the Lord gave us these three things to give careful consideration to today and and uh, give it our best. Let's think about the situation here. John 18 starts, Jesus said, finish the high priestly prayer, and then he retreats with his disciples out to uh, what we would know as the Garden of Gethsemane from the other gospel accounts. And now... This was the situation, this was the opportunity that the Jews were waiting for. So you remember, from the start of John, Jesus is performing miracles, and he's doing these signs and wonders, and he's teaching authoritatively, and that's that's chafing the Jewish leaders, but it's sign after sign after sign after sign until John 11, and you remember the big sign in John 11, where a dead man comes out of the tomb. And in John chapter 11, that's it for the Jewish leaders, Okay. They're concerned about something here. And here's what they're concerned about. The Jews are under Roman rule. And, and the Romans are keeping a close watch on them. In fact, right up adjacent to the temple, 
the, the Romans would have had a structure that they would have had staffed with military support. They overlooked the temple. They were overseeing the, the operations of worship, the uh, worship, the goings on, the in and out of the temple and all that the Jews were doing. And the Jewish leaders are concerned if this Jesus causes enough of a stir, that's going to, that's going to impede our freedom. We're gonna, we're gonna get the Romans upset. And this is where Caiaphas said in John chapter 11, it'd be better if we get rid of this guy. If one man dies, than for the whole nation to be in trouble. Let's keep the peace. Let's make sure that Rome doesn't get um, upset. Let's get rid of this troublemaker, this one that's causing such a stir. The terrible irony of this, huh? So this is an opportunity they're waiting for. They're waiting for this opportunity because they need Jesus away from the Roman authorities that are overlooking the the temple and all of their area and they also need him away from the crowds because jesus did have a following and they were concerned about either upsetting the romans or upsetting the crowds and now they've got their opportunity and this is where judas becomes so helpful because judas knew the time and the place and he knew exactly where to get jesus alone with his disciples and now he comes the text says with with this cohort with a band of soldiers your text might say a, a cohort of Roman soldiers. That word Roman is not in the Greek. It's just a cohort. That can describe a group of Roman soldiers. The number is probably 300 to 600 soldiers. It's a lot more likely that this is the temple guard, though, from, from the Jewish temple. He says, Judas, having received the cohort, the band of soldiers, from the chief priests and the Pharisees, 600 Roman soldiers don't work for the Pharisees. This is likely the temple guard. At, at the behest of the chief priests, at the behest of the Jewish leaders, coming to arrest Jesus. At any rate, it's a large number of armed men prepared for the potential of resistance. They come, they find Jesus with his eleven, and Jesus steps forward. Jesus engages them and is ready to move on with the next step of this. We'll come back to that. And of course, Peter, Peter who was brave, Peter who was ready to fight, Peter who was eager to serve the Lord and even die for him, steps up to resist and Jesus says, not now. Not now. He's not telling Peter that all Christians are pacifists at all times. By the way, he's saying not now. That's not what we're up to right now. And then Jesus is taken from there. He's bound He's taken from there into, into the, what unfolds next is just a bogus trial. So typically there would be due process. They, they would have due process in place where somebody who's accused of wrongdoing would be detained at a certain place near the temple. And then they'd be given a fair trial. But notice this, Jesus is not given a fair trial. He's given a joke of a trial. He's actually taken to Annas who... Who, this is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas was previously the high priest. He wasn't the high priest now. Caiaphas was the high priest now. But under the Torah, under the Old Testament law, the, the high priest was a lifetime office. Now under Roman rule, and, and with some manipulation, the high priest is being um, plugged in and out, sometimes on an annual basis. So Caiaphas is in there, but Annas is still recognized by many as having this authority and this clout, and he's respected and even referred to as high priest. But but look at what happens. They take Jesus under cover of darkness, not to the public place where a criminal would be detained, not to a place where where or somebody accused would be detained, and, and then not to a place where there would be a fair trial, but but takes them to somebody's personal residence in order to get the case closed before the trial ever really starts. And so here's, here's what's going on. In John chapter 11, Caiaphas determined, this man Jesus needs to die. And, and you probably know that the Jews, while they were under Roman rule, had no ability or authority to execute apart from Roman approval of that. Right? They needed Pilate, they needed the Romans to say execution is okay. They needed it to be approved. And so here's what they couldn't have. They couldn't have a fair trial. They couldn't have a fair trial. Not if they wanted Jesus condemned. And so they need to, they need to get this thing going in a particular direction before it ever really gets started. They need to get Jesus condemned 
and they need to have they need to have this conflict broiling before it ever gets in front of Pilate. And so that's why this is behind the scenes. That's why this is in darkness. And you can see Jesus rebuke um, rebuke Annas in this when he says, "Listen, I I taught in public. You can ask all the people everything that I taught. I didn't do it in secret." So, so he's rebuking him. You're asking me in secret. You're not asking honest questions here. This isn't a fair trial. He knew he was being rebuked, and that's why one of the guards struck Jesus. And then, of course, in the middle of this, Peter denies Christ three times, just as Jesus had predicted. This is what's happening in the narrative. Now, let's start to press in and think about these three things that I don't want us to miss. And the first one is the willing condescension of Christ. The willing condescension of Christ. Look with me at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. He infallibly knew what was ahead of him, and he proceeded. He didn't just know vaguely that it was going to be difficult. He didn't just know generally that he was going to suffer. Perfectly omniscient. What did he know? He knew that a close friend that he loved and served with was in the process of betraying him. He knew that he was about to go get a bogus trial and be treated unfairly. He knew that he would be mocked. He knew that he would be scorched. In fact, he knew that he would be beaten beyond recognition. Scripture says that before he even went to the cross, his flesh was hanging off of him like ribbons. Beaten so badly you wouldn't be able to recognize him. He knew that. And he knew that he would carry a cross to the point of exhaustion. Then he knew that he would be nailed to the cross and suffer an agonizing death for crimes that he didn't commit. Worst of all, as we'll see in a minute, he knew that he would take the wrath of God. He knew. He knew, and he didn't drag his feet, but he stepped forward and said, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it. I want you to think, I want you to think about what this says about the amazing love of Christ for you. You understand that? Romans 5, 6 through 8. Jesus knew also who he was doing this for. Turn with me to Romans 5. He knew he wasn't dying for good men and women. While we were still helpless, verse 6, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ knew the extent of His suffering and He knew that He would do that in the place of people who were not deserving of it. He infallibly knew what was ahead of Him and He proceeded anyway. He knew all about His impending suffering. He understood exactly what the cost of your redemption would be. And he was determined to pay it. He knew exactly what the cost would be. And he was determined to pay it. He didn't flinch. He didn't flinch. I was thinking about this last week. Um, I can explain. There's nothing wrong. Uh, but but Titus and I like to box and play fight. I, he doesn't like it that much. But I like it. <laughs> We're in the truck. And and um, the other day, and I, I faked a punch. And he flinches. Well, why does he, why does he flinch? Because he knew. <laughs> he knew. And all joking aside, Jesus knew. He acutely knew what suffering would be. And without flinching, steps forward and says, I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay for you so that you don't have to pay. Not only this, but Jesus had the power to stop it at any time. Jesus had the power to stop this at any time. Look with me at verses 6 and 8. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who's they? The band of soldiers, the cohort. 
300, 600 armed, trained guards, men prepared for a fight. They find 11 chumps and Jesus in the garden. Jesus says, I am, and they hit the deck. Think about what's happening here. Some people make, um, some people point out that in the Greek, where he says, I am he, the he, which is italicized in, in a lot of your translations, it's, it's not there in the Greek, he just says, I am. I am. It's constructed in exactly the same way as when, in John 8, 58, when, when Jesus is having this standoff with the Pharisees, and he says, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to stone him because they considered it blasphemy, taking the covenant-keeping name of God, the great I am, upon himself, identifying with God. Here's what I don't know. I, I don't know if Jesus intended to do explicitly that here in the way that the Greek is, is given to us. But here's what we do know. That's exactly who's speaking. The great I am says, I'm the one you're looking for. This is the same one who spoke the cosmos into existence. This is the same one who spoke and caused the flood to come and then also caused it to retreat. This is the same one who spoke and the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his clan in the rebellion. This is, this is the same one. This is the same one who will speak, judge the living and the dead, who will make all things new. This is who's speaking. And he demonstrates this power. He demonstrates this power right now while they come to arrest him. He says, I am he, and they all hit the ground. This is, this is an incredible scene, and it's hard to imagine to me what's, what's going through their mind. Can, can you imagine this awareness that all this person has to do is speak, and you're on your back, and he says, okay, now go ahead and take me. Would you not be a little bit terrified? This is telling us that this is entirely voluntary. Who's calling the shots here? You paying attention to what's happening in the text? Who's calling the shots? Therefore, he again asked them, who do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, you let these go. Who's in charge here? <laughs> you all hit the ground when I say I am he, and I'll let you up. Here's the deal. I'll go, but none of these, none of these are, are getting taken in right now. Because I said that I won't lose any of them. <laughs> Who's calling the shots? This is incredible. He had the power to stop it at any time. Christ did not suffer because he could not escape. He did not die because he could not help it. Christ voluntarily condescended and allowed himself to be arrested and led to the cross. He was a willing sufferer. Brothers and sisters, he would go willingly or he would not go at all. Right? There is no power that could coerce him. There is nobody that could force him. There's no, there's no turn of events that would make him do anything that he did not want to do. He would go willingly to pay your debt or he wouldn't go at all. And Jesus was determined to finish the work that the Father gave him. Verse 11. Here's Peter. We'll talk about Peter before we finish up and what I think is going on here. But Peter, Peter responds with this incredible allegiance, this incredible faith, this incredible bravery. Think, think about what happens here. There's hundreds of soldiers. Peter's probably um, only one of two who've got a sword. He steps up, ready to fight. Takes a swing. Jesus says, not right now, Pete. Again, not because this, this is the uh, proof text for why Christians are and always ought to be pacifists. That'd be a bad misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is saying, I came for a purpose. And I'm headed to that purpose. And I'm going to fulfill a plan. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This cup is the cup of God's wrath. In the other gospel accounts, you see Jesus in Gethsemane saying, uh, Father, may, may this cup pass. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. 
You see this willingness while recognizing the severity of it. The cup of God's wrath. This is the white hot wrath of God against your sin, against my sin. This is the most terrifying part about the passion of Christ. This is, this is the most horrific thing that he went through. Other men have been scorched. Other saints have been crucified. Other people have died as bad or maybe worse a death than Jesus Christ. Nobody, nobody has taken the wrath of God except for Jesus Christ. He anticipated this. He anticipated a terror that we cannot even imagine. All of your sin and all of God's anger against it laid on him in order that the wrath of God would be satisfied. And he says, Pete, put the sword away because I've got a job to do. I've got people who need to be made clean. I've got sins that need to be forgiven. And I'm not stopping until that job is done. He was determined to finish the work that the Father had given him. Christ agreed to take on and satisfy the wrath of God that we deserve. And on the cross, He drank that cup down to its dregs. There's no other way for you to be saved. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, you will either pay the penalty for eternity in hell, or Christ paid it for you. But the wrath of God will be satisfied. Trust in Him. This is the work that the Father gave Jesus to do. And this is how Caiaphas' prophecy that one man should die for the nation would be fulfilled. He was going to finish the job. We see the willing condescension of Christ. Don't miss that. Treasure that, saints. Let that encourage you, strengthen you, assure you today. Here's what we also see. We see the incredible hardness of unbelieving men. Let's make note of this. We're going to look at three characters here as we examine the incredible hardness of unbelieving men. First, Judas. Judas who commits apostasy after walking with Jesus and seeing miracles. Judas who was betraying him. Think, think about this. Judas, Judas was part of the twelve. Judas was serving alongside the twelve, alongside Christ. He, he saw firsthand Jesus work incredible miracles. He saw, he saw the multitudes fed. He saw Lazarus raised. He saw the sick healed. Right? He's, he, he's seen all of this firsthand and yet betrays Christ. The one who was once alongside Christ now stands across from Christ, opposed to His mission. And we should make note of this. Witnessing multiple miracles was not sufficient to make Judas a genuine follower of Christ and keep him from betrayal. Witnessing multiple miracles was not sufficient to make Judas a genuine follower of Christ and keep him from betrayal. The hardness of unbelief cannot be overcome by the proof of miracles outside of us. It can only be overcome by a miracle that God does in us. Let me say that again. Okay, The hardness of unbelief cannot be overcome by the proof of miracles outside of us. It can only be overcome by a miracle that God does within us. I remember years ago... Um, sharing the gospel with a man. I'm, I'm pleading with him. It's not the first time I've shared the gospel with him. And, and his answer to me was, Roger, if I could, if God would just do a miracle, like I read about this stuff, somebody died, went to heaven, came back, if that could happen to me, or if I could, if I could see some manifestation, some miracle, I would trust in him. To which I would say, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. You're looking at miracles every day. You're looking at miracles every day. I had this conversation with another man I was um, preaching the gospel to, and, and he says, I, I just don't believe in miracles. And I walked outside and I said, would you look out here? And, and we look at this landscape outside. I said, how do you explain that? And he goes, uh, uh. I said, a miracle? He said, yeah. <laughs> so you do believe in miracles. Yeah, which ones? Which ones? The hardness of unbelief requires a work of God doing a miracle in somebody to be overcome. 
Let's look at the soldiers as we think about the incredible hardness of unbelieving men. These soldiers are still against Christ after witnessing his power. I have a hard time understanding what these dudes are thinking. And he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Okay? He commands they can't take the other disciples, and then they arrest Jesus and take him bound. These men knew they were outgunned. These men knew this one that they were opposing could crush them. And yet they continued to oppose him. Witnessing the power of Christ did not prevent the soldiers from continuing in their mission against Christ. The hardness of unbelief cannot be overcome by knowing that God does and will overpower you. It can only be overcome when God uses his power to overcome your unbelief. This reminds me of, so of course James says in the book of James that the demons believe and they shudder. So they know. They know They know better than a lot of us the facts. And they agree that the facts are true. Right? They know who God is. And they know the outcome of history. So, so just to be clear, this isn't... Um, we're not functioning on a maybe regarding Christ's ultimate triumph in history, okay? We're functioning on a certainty, okay? We're not, we're not in a situation where maybe the devil will win somehow, okay? Or maybe the demons will gain some ground. No, absolutely not, okay? They already know they're subject to Christ. Think about when Jesus comes and he finds the man, um, the, the demoniac, possessed by um, legion. And Jesus approaches the demoniac and, and the answer is, Son of man, from the demons, Son of man, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? What? You know the gig is up and you're still kicking? Like, you know you've got no chance. You know that every minute you're storing up wrath, and yet you still oppose this one? Do you see that? This is what, this is what was happening with the demons, and this, something like this is happening with these men. In the hardness of unbelief, you can know, in frustration, know, that God does and will ultimately overpower you. But that knowledge is not a saving faith. The hardness of unbelief must be overcome by God's grace when He uses His power to overcome your hardness and your unbelief. The high priest. In this trial, we see the high priest asking questions, questioning Jesus about His disciples, questioning Jesus about His ministry, but he's asking questions while suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He's not asking honest questions. Evidenced by um, the, you know, the great comeback to Jesus' response, which is punch him. Right? So when you're losing an argument, if all else fails, this is what the high priest, this is what the guard does. His questioning of Jesus was not based on a genuine desire to, to carry out a fair trial. And this is the point. In the hardness of unbelief, there's a predetermined conclusion already. So the high priest had no intention of considering any evidence that would acquit Jesus. That wasn't even an option in his mind. Right? It's not, not even an option in his mind to say, oh, if I'm presented with some evidence that demonstrates that, that he's innocent, then, oh, we're done here. We'll send him out. That's not what's going on. What's done here is this man's going to die, and then what's taken serious is only the evidence that, that um, would corroborate with whatever's needed to prosecute him, condemn him. Okay, And if, if there's any evidence presented 
to, to prove his innocence, it's rejected, it's ignored. This is what the high priest is doing in the hardness of unbelief. And this is what the unbeliever does in questioning God. This is what the unbeliever does in questioning God. Caiaphas and Annas weren't interested in having answers that might potentially show Jesus was innocent. They were not interested. And when the non-believer, when the atheist is, is pressing with questions, what's happening is they've already started, they've already started with unbelief. They've already started with, no, I'm not accepting a God. Not accepting a God. And I'm only considering facts and evidence that would support my position. Romans chapter 1, Paul describes this as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. They know the truth. They come in contact with the truth. And in the hardness of unbelief, take a look at the truth right in the face and say, I don't like you. And push that down. That's what's happening in the hardness of unbelief. We talked about this in Bible class. Um, we some, some of the men in our small group last week were, were talking about this issue. And we were commenting on how we watched a conversation between Bill Nye the Science Guy and Ken Ham at the, at the Ark Creation Museum. And Bill Nye and Ken Ham are having some back and forth about the origins of, of human life. And, and Ham obviously says, uh, there's, there's a creator, there's an uncaused first cause. God created everyone and everything. And, and Bill Nye says, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. I haven't put my brain in the trash can. You expect me to believe in a God? Okay, ball's in your court. What do you think? Well, sometime, a long time ago, a meteor hit Mars and life from Mars landed on Earth and then began to evolve into human life. That's Bill Nye's answer. What's going on here? What's going on here? That's crazy. That's more plausible than God created? Martians? That's, that's where we go? So here, here's my point. I have a lot of respect for Bill Nye. I have a lot of respect. The man's brilliant. Way, way smarter than I am. But here's what's happening. His starting point is, I will not bow. In the hardness of unbelief, in the hardness of unbelief, I don't care how illogical it is, I'll buy it if it gets me out of submission to this God that I'm accountable to. I'm not interested in any facts or evidence, no matter how true or reasonable or right they are. It, it doesn't matter if it leads me to the, the conclusion that I don't want. I only want to know the conclusion that I want to know. This is what's happening with the high priest, and this is what's happening with the unbeliever, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Last thing I want us to see. Oh, being exposed to the truth did not prevent the high priest from rejecting Christ. The hardness of unbelief cannot be persuaded by the truth alone because it is committed to suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So we talked about this in Bible class today, that, that the Lord uses His Word, the instrument of the Word, to convert people, create a believer, and form His church. But in order for the Word to be effective, the Holy Spirit has to make it effective. Nobody gets saved apart from the Holy Spirit changing a heart. And the Holy Spirit changes a heart through the ministry of the Word. It's these things together that will change a heart. They will take an unconverted man, a hard heart, and have him bow. Have him bow. Not the information alone. The last thing that I want us to spend a little time thinking about today has to do with our buddy Peter and the temptation for a real disciple to deny Christ. Temptation for a real disciple to deny Christ. So we see an apostate like Judas deny Christ in one way where he goes from uh, being on his side to against him. And then we see, a, we see a different kind of denial with a real disciple here, Jesus, or uh, with Peter, a real disciple of Jesus. And I think... Oftentimes, Peter gets a, a little bit of a bad rap. I think Peter, Peter often is assumed to be a coward in this situation and to be motivated primarily by fear, fear of his life. Is that, how, is that kind of how you've assumed this story plays out? 
Peter's now there, and he's afraid that if they recognize him, that the gig is up and he's in trouble too. I think Peter gets a bad rap. Peter was not a coward. Peter was not a coward. Go back to verse 10. Simon Peter then, having a sword. Okay, so this is first century open carry. <laughs> Peter's, Peter's packing. Okay? He's not packing because he's not willing to fight. Right? Okay? He's, he's packing, and then, look at what happens here. Okay, remember, 300, 600, a bunch, bunch of armed men, bunch of armed trained soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and here goes Pete. Let's get him. Let's get him. And he swings, and he takes off the ear of the servant. That means he was aiming for his head. Right? Peter was aiming to kill, and he missed by a little bit. Peter was not a coward. Peter was not a coward. Peter was the kind of guy that if he thought it was time to fight, wanted to be at the front of the fight. If he thought it was time to fight, he wanted to be at the front of the fight. I, I imagine him like um, my uncle, who always used to say, I won't start it, but if you start it, I'll finish it. <laughs> I won't start it, but if you start it, I'll finish it. I think that more accurately describes Peter. He was not a coward. So what's going on? What's going on with Peter? Peter, I think, resisted... I'm sorry, Peter vowed to lay down his life for Christ. If you go back to John 13, 37, um, this is where Jesus, Jesus uh, or Peter says, I'll, I'll give my life for you. I'll, I'm with you to the end. Before Jesus predicts his denial, Peter vowed to lay down his life for Christ and he was eager to prove it. Eager to prove it. Peter was at the front of the fight when he thought it was time to fight. He was not a coward. So what's going on here, I think, is that Peter resisted Jesus' humiliation and suffering. This is what I think is happening in, in verse 10. So Peter's, or Peter's ready to go. Peter's ready to fight. What Peter's not ready for is to see his king who could speak and knock down everybody there give up. He does not want to see this one that could feed a multitude with a kid's lunchable go in and get treated like this at some phony trial. Right? He doesn't want to see Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who would deliver and unify Israel, he doesn't want to see him go down like this. And we've seen this before, haven't we? John 13, 8. John 13, 6 through 8. Remember at the washing of the feet? Jesus comes to Simon Peter. Peter says to him, Lord, you're washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I'm doing you do not realize right now. But you will understand later. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Never shall you wash my feet. It's a very similar misunderstanding that's happening here. Peter is saying, no, you don't go that low. That's the servant's job. You're, you're the master. You're the teacher. Right? Rabbi, that's not your job. Jesus is saying, you haven't understood why I came. I came to wash you. I came to cleanse you. Right? Peter says, no, 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 don't do that. Jesus says, Pete, you're getting washed. Right? This is what's happening now. As Jesus is surrendering, willfully surrendering, Pete's going, no, 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 you're the king. V victory, right? Let's go. I'll die. I'll die in a fight unto victory. No, Pete. I came to die. I still have to wash you. I still have to wash you. I still have to take the wrath of God. I still have to drink that down to its very dregs. I have a job to finish. Matthew 16. Okay, so from this time on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and to be killed and to be raised up on the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
You see what Peter's struggling with? Peter's not scared. Peter wants to win. Peter's not afraid to fight. Peter wants a particular kind of fight. Do you see that? No, 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 no. You don't die. What's Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. You're not, you are not setting your mind on God's purposes, but man's. I think this pattern that we see with Peter is what is being repeated here. Peter's not a coward. Peter's not afraid to fight. Peter is misunderstanding what Christ has to do to finish his mission. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, Peter was committed, zealous, and brave, but he repeatedly failed to grasp God's purposes for Christ. Peter's denial likely wasn't primarily because of fear, but more likely due to disappointment and disillusionment. It's noteworthy in the text that, so, so this other disciple that the high priest knew, that's, that's most likely John, and he knows John, so John's not hiding his identity. He knows John, they know that John was a disciple of Jesus, and he strolls right into to the high priest's home. They're not there incognito. And then he goes out and he says, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go get Pete and bring him in. Peter's denial here is not because he doesn't want to be recognized as Peter who had been following Jesus before. Peter now is disappointed and disillusioned because he's, he's assumed that this is not what Christ came to do. This is not what Christ came to do. This is not the way I want the mission fulfilled. This is not the outcome of the mission in my mind. I will fight for you. I will die for you. I will lay down my life for you. I don't want to lose. That leads to our last point. Like Peter, true disciples may be tempted to deny Christ when he appears to be failing us or taking us where we do not want to go. Peter didn't deny that he was Peter. He denied that he was currently a disciple of Christ in this moment. I am not. Are you in? Are you following this man? Not now. Not now. He's not pretending that he wasn't before. So much as saying, not anymore. Not if this is how it goes down. Not if this is how it goes down. So I want, I want us to think about this. Um, I'll bet that if this room that is full of saints was put in a position where um, you had to either give your life, deny Christ, or lose your life, I'll bet we'd start to fill up heaven. Right? I'll bet there'd be a faithful cloud of witnesses here that would not deny Christ, but would give up their life, and, and we would be in heaven singing pretty soon. I, I believe that about this church. Here's a, here's a more challenging question. Okay? In that situation, the, the question is put before us. Okay, are you his disciples? We say, yes, you take my life, you send me home. No problem. Right? Okay, now here's another question. When Jesus gives you commands, he gives you instructions in his word that seem hard, that seem confusing, that seem difficult for you to obey, that seem uncomfortable, countercultural, and then the question is, are you his disciple? Does the answer change? Or how about, how about when Jesus ordains that the path you're walking right now in your life is marked by suffering, disappointment, loss, trial, difficulty? And then the question is, are you his disciple? Is the answer I'm not or is the answer yes, I'm still his disciple? You see, I think, I think the greater temptation for us to deny Christ comes when we're disappointed or disillusioned by what he either told us to do or the path that he has us on in our life. Like Peter, I think that we real disciples are tempted to deny Christ in this way. Peter didn't deny being a disciple of Christ because he thought that Jesus couldn't do something about the situation he likely denied being a disciple because he thought that Jesus could do something but didn't. You see that? How often does that describe your frustration towards God or disobedience 
when you don't get what you want or when things don't go the way that you want, where do you turn? Where do you turn? You deny Christ when you know that He could do something. He could stop something. He could make something happen. But He chose not to. This is important for us to reflect on. Hey, we need to remember that Christ is accomplishing His mission in and through circumstances that sometimes look bleak to us. And He often commands us to live in ways that are challenging or commands us in ways that to our sensibilities don't seem right. Can you trust when the Lord's Word really challenges you and calls you to do something difficult? Can you trust that it's going according to plan? Can you trust the Lord when your circumstances are not what you hope for? Or when they involve suffering or heartache? Can you trust that it's going according to plan? Peter was in. He'd say, I'm a disciple, ready to die for Jesus when it made sense to him. Will you say, I am a disciple, even when it doesn't make sense? Even when it's hard? It's important for us to think about. Every believer is going to be asked the question, are you one of his? Will your answer change when his word challenges you? Or will your answer change when your circumstances are not what you hope for? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for some sweet reminders that you gave us today. Oh, Lord, what a treasure that you willingly went. You willingly went, condescended to go to the cross, knowing the cost of our redemption and resolute to pay it in full. What sweet assurance for us. That, that even though we were not willing to believe, you were willing to die. Even though we are reluctant to trust you, you were not reluctant to die for us. We thank you so much for that, Lord. We thank you for the reminder that we depend upon you using your word to crack open the hard heart of unbelief. Pray that you would help us to trust you, plead with you, and depend on you as we seek to evangelize. And Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the temptation to deny you in the way that Peter did. Lord, help us to trust you and say, I am your disciple, even when it looks to us like the plan isn't what it ought to be. Help us to be resolved to say, you're a Lord, and we'll follow you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? You have a sweet treasure to contemplate as you go out from here regarding Christ's willing pursuit of you, His willing sacrifice for you. This is incredibly good news that He did, in fact, accomplish your redemption and drink down the cup of God's wrath for you. This is news that other people desperately need to hear. Let's go out from here and let's share that. Let's be a proclaiming people this week. Go in peace.